Are you having a bad day, Mr. Chin? No, I'm just not in the mood for bullshit. So, so. Well, you came to the wrong <laughs> yeah. place. I know. <laughs> this is like a Roman bathhouse full of bullshit. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it kind of started when um, I had four interviews today. Oh, God. Then the last interview was a guy um, internally who had already been on the job and um, he was promoting. But he had to go through the internal the process again because that's just how we do things. And um, <laughs> you're fucking smacking, dude. It's just like so awful. My smacking? Yeah. Mm. Oh. Yeah, so dude. <laughs> yeah. These shapes are fucking amazing, man, I tell you. Anyway, popcorn's anyway, weak. Uh, then the last interview was fucking this guy weak. who uh, was really fucking weak. to promote. And he um like the worst blew it out of the park. So that was really good. Oh, it, nice. You know, wasn't blown out of the he park. Blew you guys in the park. Your mom. Your mom wasn't blown out of the park. I don't have a mom. My father and I share yours. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to start this show, motherfucker. <laughs> oh shit! All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to Shadowcast episode. What the fuck? Is it 14 now? Uh, yep. Jesus Christ. Yep. That's 14 fucking weeks of doing this goddamn show. What are we doing with our lives? What are, what, no, what are the listeners doing with their lives? <laughs> Holy shit. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, but I think we account for like. 30% of the listens. We go back and listen to our own stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, it's almost a sexual experience for me, to be honest with you. Uh, in some cases, it actually is. So, uh, what? Was that Santa Claus? Yep. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about, man. Me neither. Yeah. A good show. Uh, I'm Whiskey Neon, and tonight I'm joined with uh, Black Math. Hello, hello. Mr. Chin. Yo, yo. And the amazing Zandy. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's not that earlier. Oh, it's going to be a crazy show tonight. Uh, Mr. Chin, coming back to us after an amazing experience last Friday, hanging out with celebrities in the most exclusive largest world casino in all of Oklahoma. Mr. Chin, tell us just how incredible it was to be dancing with the stars. It was fantastic, Whiskey Neon. I was in the cloud. I was bouncing from cloud to cloud, hand in hand with all of these celebrities that were just there to take my money and give me lung cancer through secondhand smoke of the casino floor. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to die of mesothelioma. Wait, this particular casino is yes. This particular <laughs> the smoke cloud even. It was a cloud of smoke. Service. Uh, this was uh, secondhand smoke as a service. Um, 
This particular casino is located in rural Oklahoma. It is literally the only fucking thing there. Uh, you need to go probably 30 miles to get to anywhere decent, and even then it's the fucking ghetto, so don't even bother. Very true. But no, it was cool. <laughs> Had a good time. Uh, made like 20 wow. cents on gambling. Probably lost like five years off the, off the secondhand smoke. So that actually sounds like... Uh an incredible experience to me. You made an entire 20 cents. Um, Mr. Chin is so incredibly tight with his money. This must have absolutely overjoyed you. Um, um no, no, not really. Oh, uh, well, uh, how was the, uh, did you, you know, dance you, for money? I did not dance for money. <laughs> yeah. Cause who would pay for that? But, there. um, the, uh, the actual show itself, you're bitching heavily about the casino, but that's honestly, that's every casino you'll ever go to. Yeah, well, you know, um, the show was good. I mean, it was, it was entertaining to a point. Uh, what was the point? What was the point at which it was not entertaining? Uh, about three seconds after it started. Oh, <laughs> man. Does your wife listen to the show? No, no, of course not. Uh, he wouldn't be alive if that were the case. Um, so this is, uh, an incredible update. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Rage Chin, a.k.a. Mr. Chin, a.k.a. Uh, Swagger of Swagger Systems. This, uh, Speaking of rage, I broke my phone. <laughs> oh, that's Again? really bad. Wow, because, uh, Mr. Chin is not a fan of touchscreen keyboards. He requires a phone that has a, uh actual hardware keyboard so what it's funny you mentioned that because i i chucked my galaxy s5 across the room and shattered the screen and now i'm back to a motorola droid 4 which does have a hundred <laughs> wait 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 <laughs> what happened that caused the 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 rage the s5 to become <laughs> a uh, projectile a from planet chin oh uh, well um see i was uh typing into my linux command line and um <laughs> everything everything <laughs> that I was doing required that I use the GUI, and that just wasn't acceptable. Oh, man. <laughs> so what did you end up doing, man? How did how did you get through this scenario? Well, I picked up the phone, and I chucked it across the room, and then I went, well, shit. And <laughs> shut off the computer rest. and walked away from it, and it was very much that... <laughs> Famous Bill Murray picture where he just chucks the golf club. Um, yeah. Uh, and I picked up the Droid 4 and swapped out the SIM card and said, well, okay, fine. I'm well, trying to figure out what phone I want to use to replace it. I'll, I'll tell you right now. Probably uh, a Nexus or something. Yeah, yeah. You always want to go with the Nexus line. Um, Get an iPhone 3G. <laughs> yeah you could actually put android on it so i, I could you know yeah. i might contact um our our trusted vendor the smartphone guy to see if he might have any premium deals going on there yes <laughs> uh we are not sellouts here at shadow systems but we just 100 percent support uh the business efforts of polygon non-existent companies yes <laughs> uh yes if you go to the smartphone guy.com please support good old polygon was and that dot com or dot co? <laughs> dot com. That it one was, was dot com. That one was dot com. Yeah. It was a Facebook page too. Yeah, and a big money MacBook. I mean, when you really look at what all he's accomplished, uh, 
uh, the hot dog stand industry has been taken by a storm due to his uh, business acumen. Uh, it's wiener slinging abilities. Yes, yes. Uh, he is an incredible individual, and we're so glad to have him a part of our team here at Shadow Systems. Um, Mr. Chin has always been extremely attached to Polygon and protective and has always <laughs> tried to guide him into the best business ventures possible. So when you think about it, I could not think of a more better team to work on business projects together than these two. You know, now that you mention it, um, I, I believe that uh, there might be some real estate offerings in the near future. So stay tuned. Well, that sounds incredible. Uh, I think that that's something that anyone should jump on board. You know, that could actually be an interesting crowdfunding project. Think about it. Uh, we could have, all of these people uh, band together and crowdsource buying real estate in key areas to troll someone's life. Like a half faker. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Turn it into a mobile data center. That would be awesome. I agree. Well, thank you, Mr. Chen, for your update. We appreciate the insight into your life. Uh, Black Matt, did you take out a data center this week, or are we all good? No, not this week. Oh, that's sad to hear. How about you, Zandy? Oh, what have you been up to this past week? Jack shit. Well, I'm uh, proud of your accomplishments, and you never disappoint me, so thank you for that. Uh, tonight's going to be a special night because we're wrapping up part three of the phone freaking saga. And, uh, I'm really uh, looking forward to all of the knowledge and insight that Mr. Chen's going to provide tonight because he's a real subject matter expert on uh, uh, government surveillance uh, in the clandestine uh, fashion. So thank you so much, Mr. Chen, for stepping up and uh, being the subject matter expert on that tonight. Uh, Mr. Chen, I believe your mic is on mute. Or did you fall asleep? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm intentionally not saying anything. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that being that said, saying dot dot dot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So why don't we move into our first segment of the show called the feed? Now it's time for the feed. Good news from Google this week. Uh, so as of June thirtieth. Google's advertising networks were no longer allowed the uploading of Flash content to be used in ads. Any ad using Flash will be removed from ad networks on January 2nd, 2017. Since Google wow. controls roughly 65% of the online advertising market, this is a significant step in the eradication of this horrible, outdated technology. So, props to Google for that one. Hallelujah. Yes. Um... Jesus, Mr. Chen, could you type any louder? But anyways, uh, <laughs> if that uh, if that made you happy about Google and ads, uh, I'm hopefully going to make you a tad happier here. Google has announced that Chrome will begin warning users of sites that have those annoying as fuck, shady ass, fake download buttons. Uh, I know you all know what I'm talking about. You've seen it before. You go to a site with like pirated content or maybe an application you want it for free or some shit. And then uh, these few, fucking huge download buttons are actually the, like ads 
delivering yep. some kind of webcam porn shit or malware. Uh, they fucking suck. It's like the green download. Like, honestly, I remember on one side I needed to download something. And there were like four of these fake download buttons <laughs> on the same page. And the actual download link was the tiny little fucking blue link. Uh, <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. Uh, and if you're lucky, uh, it, you know, you'll, you'll get both webcam porn uh, and malware when you click on those links. So, with this new blocking system in place, it's also going to protect users from uh, fake Flash and Java update ads and uh, bullshit plugin ads like, uh, you need this codec installed, you know, all that shit. Uh, so, it's going to help out with that and um, any shady shit that you're used to seeing when you go to download something, uh, you're going to have some protection to help you out there. And Chrome's team is going to be adding more safety features into Chrome to assist in warning users of social engineering attacks. So uh, this is pretty cool. They've actually put a like full effort into um, stopping through crowdsourcing and, te and technical measures um, social engineering t attacks online. That's that's pretty cool. I like that. Thanks, Google. Yeah, they're doing some good shit. Uh, at least in security research and safety, but uh. Yeah, between between Google as a whole and Tavis, I mean, <laughs> yeah, our boy Tavis, um, yeah, th there was he did something that was in the news this week, but he had done earlier in the month, um, just like uh, Cromodo, uh, the uh, stupid browser that was insecure. Uh, Tavis also saw saw that a vast version of Chrome is also vulnerable too. Yeah, like, what the fuck are they making browsers for? This is so stupid. Uh, but yeah, their Project Zero is pretty awesome. Anyways, uh, Blackmath, you uh, mentioned last week about uh, a university getting getting owned. Yeah, I think I mentioned briefly just the headline, and I moved on. Yeah, it was University of Central Florida. Uh, they had uh, 63 thousand current and former student and employee social security numbers stolen by hackers Ooh, according to the university administration so um the student socials were stolen uh, from uh just the athletes so no other students other than athletes were affected uh, now the affected employees in contrast were from various departments and roles uh, some of the former employee information dates back to employees from the 80s. So <laughs> it's a pretty large breach there yeah. for that college. Holy shit. Um, so, of course, in response to this, in a gesture that seems to be all too common these days, the university is providing the affected individuals with free uh, credit monitoring and identity theft protection for a year. So... Oh, thanks, university. <laughs> uh, in, a, in another breach, Alibaba's popular e-commerce site, Toaboa, I guess is how you say it. Um, it's basically a cross between Amazon and eBay. Uh, they had 20.6 million passwords brute forced in an insane campaign uh, in which 99 million usernames and passwords from a previously hacked database were used to gain access into accounts like that's insane brute forcing shit 
Yeah, so the campaign lasted from mid-October until November, and the accounts were used to buy items and leave feedback to boost the seller's feedback. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's such, it's such a Chinese scheme to me. Like, that's totally something they would do. <laughs> so the attacks were promptly reported to the uh, police by uh, Toaboa, and the six people are now in custody. So... To all you listeners out there, make sure you install a password manager and do not reuse passwords because if the database is leaked and they get your passwords, they can try it against all of these services and see if you use the same password. So uh, you can get a password manager. I personally like KeePass. Uh, You can find it at (laughs) (laughs) keepass.info. Uh, but that's my favorite. Uh, Black yeah. Math, you used to recommend LastPass, but... Um, I actually use KeyPass and LastPass for different things. Um, I use both. I like them both. LastPass for less uh, critical or high-impact stuff um, it's because it's on any... Yeah. You know, web browsers, my phone, it's already it's always synced and has some nice features. And they were already breached once. So, so they're going to be I more mean, secure. Yeah, my theory is they're not going to take as many things for granted, and they're going to be under a more watchful eye. So, you know, Yay! I mean, as long as you use two-factor and a decent master password, you're, you should be fine. But yeah, KeePass is awesome. I just wish uh, you didn't have to roll your own like sync or you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the nobody part. other than. You know, somebody well, that is good with tech is going to use that. Like, my grandmother's never going to use KeyPass. Uh, that's where I feel that uh, it's a great opportunity for someone just to make that service. There's no reason why you couldn't make a service that does that. Uh, yeah, they're third-party apps, aren't they? Yeah, but, like, an easy-to-use, like, you just use the KeyPass code base so, and file type. And you could call it, like, keybotu.co or some stupid <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> keypasslab.co <laughs> Yeah. You could just make a sync service for keypass users. That's what I'm saying, yeah. It'd be super easy. Like you could have it sync or you could have like a web-based version that's just based off of it. You just have a javascript-based client for keypass. You know what Chin I'm saying? Industries. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome project. That is not a bad idea. Yeah, so there you Uh-oh, go. Oh, he's getting a boner. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit but yeah um so yeah go to keepass.info and check out keepass uh so verizon has a video program for its wireless customers uh it's called uh, go 90 so you know i'm sure you've heard of this wildly popular application because it's uh all the rage with absolutely no one uh, it's just another attempt by a carrier, you know, to have some shit fly at you, an exclusive diuretic format. Um, this otherwise forgettable offering from Verizon is being mentioned because possibly due to the nature of it being complete shit uh, is because Go90 is shitting all over the net neutrality rules the SEC enacted this past no. year. What? You're, are you telling what? me No. Uh, damn, this dog's about to like <laughs> throw a fit. Oh wait, my oh no, the thing's not getting muted. Uh, that's why. Keep going. Uh, 
Oh, okay. So yeah, they're violating the net neutrality rules because um, any and all data used by the app does not go against your data usage, which is a direct violation of the net neutrality regulations. Ooh. What a shitty move, Verizon. Fuck burn. you guys. Yeah. Sick burn. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Uh, and, but you know, I don't know if it really has that much of an effect because I never even heard of Go90 before. Uh, but anyways, speaking of the SEC, SEC Chairman Tom Wheeler penned an opt-ed on Recode yesterday. They called for an end to uh, closed set-top boxes for your cable television. Now, this may seem like an odd issue, but Wheeler understands that Americans spend around $19.5 billion a year renting cable boxes from their cable providers. Um, if you've ever used one of these boxes before, you will agree that they, they just suck donkey dick. And we would all be better off with, like, competitive free market cable box, like, market, basically. Um, a free-for-all, not this, like, lockdown system that's 100% proprietary. It's complete bullshit. Um, using a device like a Google TV or the Xbox One uh, with info, uh, infrared blasters, what makes those devices so cool is that you can actually use their own guide, and it will you know, do all of this shit for you. So it's basically like a universal remote that is an overlay to replace all of that shitty uh, UI. And, uh, you know, the, the, the cable boxes feature-wise suck dick and the entire UI is horrible. Um, no offense to those who uh, like to suck penis. But the point remains is that a better UI, better features, like a real awesome explosion. Like you can see a Roku cable box occur easily. That's the kind of shit we need to see. And hopefully the FCC, uh, when they uh, vote on it uh, next month, let's fucking hold our breath because we need to see not only awesome innovation, but the cable companies lose that 19.5 billion dollars that they don't actually deserve i know i know mr chin probably hates renting (laughs) a cable box i was just thinking while you were talking uh cable still exists oh yeah that's right i thought you had cable for a while when you lived okay cable television yeah yeah no yeah that still exists it's kind of bullshit renting equipment anyways it is i mean at least with cable modems for internet, you can go by exactly. your own. Yeah, it's just fair. It's just fair to do it that way. Speaking of opening up some hardware options, uh, I've got a question for you guys. Uh-oh. Do you want some freedom with your computing hardware? Oh, no. God, yes. yes. Of course you fucking do. <laughs> so <laughs> they, there comes a couple of options out there that are like half-assed, are severely limited in power. Uh, or, or just really out of date. Y'all all know what I'm talking about. You've got, um, I don't know, like there's some open hardware projects that are just incredibly cool, but have like uh, a processor that's just like really shitty. You know what I mean? Or, or apparently y'all don't know what I mean. I don't know. No, what are you talking about? Like the, the compute oh, no. stick or I... what? Or like. Yeah, like these open computer projects, like where the hardware is completely open. Open hardware initiative for like a working computer. Yeah, all the ones I've seen, they're pretty cool, but the specs are just like, you know, 
terrible performance. Yeah. Well, you no longer need to compromise uh, too much, I guess, on a system that provides a completely open hardware and software platform from the ground up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we're talking no binary blobs. How does that sound to you, Zandy? That sounds great. <laughs> well, Raptor Engineering has announced the Talos Secure Workstation. Uh, because, Talos? Yeah, the Talos. How do you spell that? T-A-L-O-S. Like, this is... T as in tomato? Yeah, T as in titty. A as in... A as in... And then L as in Leroy. <laughs> o as in orange. And S as in sexy. The sexy secure workstation. Um, so this system itself packs a hell of a punch for the price point of $3,100. So I know you're probably like, Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, but yeah... So here's the deal with it, though. Uh, I really honestly feel like it's worth it. You're, you're not going to get one of these, like, expensive, overpriced, open hardware, lame-ass PCs. You're getting an actual high-performance system with a Power 8 uh, SCM. And so you have the options of 8, 10, and 12 cores, 8 DDR3 RDIM slots, and support up to 256 gigabytes of RAM, uh, 2X... Oh. 16 cappy PCI slots, 4x8 PCI, uh, PCI Express on both of those, sorry, PCI Express slots, and one legacy PCI slot, 6, 6 gigabits per second SATA ports, one HDMI port, 8 USB 3.0 ports, 2 gigabit Ethernet ports, and all kinds of other slots and ports, and even a fucking GPIO header. Like, this thing is fucking stacked, <laughs> full of features, and options, um, but the most exciting thing about this is the RISC-based uh, power CPU. Um, oh, RISC is good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For, hey, um, what architecture was it? It's it's uh, power. Like power PC? Uh, I, not directly related. This is more of, it's the same brand branding, but mm. no. Uh, power CPUs have been used uh, by... Uh, IBM is designed by IBM uh, for their higher-end computing systems. And um, the cool thing is, beginning with the Power 8 processor, the entire spec is open under the Open Power uh, Foundation. So the cool thing about these CPUs is that they are designed to maximize performance, especially with hyper-threading. So each core is designed to handle eight threads. So, so the 12-core option gives you 96 fucking CPU threads. That's insane. Holy Damn. shit. <laughs> so, how much does this cost? 3,100 bucks. Oh, okay. That's Oh, okay. Actually. That's fucking incredible. 96 CPU threads with a max of 256 gigabytes of RAM for 3,100 bucks. That's fucking incredible. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's true. That's pretty note. It's important yeah. to note that uh they're gauging interest. Well, I was going to they... bring that up. I let me let me let me get to that because you'll appreciate oh. this. Uh, uh, so basically the summary on this is that this is actually going to be a huge game changer, at least in my opinion. And this could seriously open the door to having a true competitor to ARM and uh, x86 and workstations, the, the power CPU. Um, I, I'm, I'm totally considering buying this system when it comes out. And, and I, I definitely encourage everyone to check it out and follow this. Um, so yeah, like Black Math was saying, what we need to do now is, um, uh, make sure to show that Raptor, that there is real interest in this. So please, if you could go to tinyurl.com 
slash Mr. Chin has herpes. And that will take you to the page on Raptor Engineering site. And you can fill out the form saying you'll buy this amazing machine. So you don't actually have to buy one. Uh, but if you just, if we can get enough people just to say they're interested, then they can make it and then fell after we buy one at the very least. But yeah, definitely go to tinyurl.com slash slash Mr. Chin has herpes. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll take you straight to the site. So is that uh, Mr. Chin with a, with a period for the mister? No, 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 it's M R C H I N H A S. H E R P E S. Mr. Chin has herpes. So it's Merchant? Merchant, yeah. Merchant. Uh, but yeah, so go check that out. This is an incredible machine. Uh, imagine running uh, a little home lab off of this. You've got a potential there of uh, 96 CPU threads to play with and 256 gigabytes of RAM. Oh my God. My life will never be the same if I have this. So, uh, you got a new story for us, Black Matt? Yeah. So, there's an article in Wired um, called How to Hack the Power Grid Through Home Air Conditioners. And I saw this article title and I said, whoa, that sounds pretty cool. And it's kind of cool. It's not really what I thought it was and basically the premise is uh, because there are a lot of power companies who you know they experience uh, large power surges during the summertime because of people running air conditioners they actually provide these uh, uh, remote or radio controlled uh, cutoff switches that allow the power company to shut off air conditioners when you know the load is high and by volunteering to install one of these gadgets on your AC you get like a, I don't know, like a rebate or a discount yeah. on your electricity bill. Um, but because uh, none of the communications are secured or encrypted, all you have to do is have a higher powered transmitter and you can overpower the power company signal and oh, force dude. the air conditioners to turn off <sighs> or turn on. <laughs> During a high load time, causing a massive power outage. <laughs> Man, I, I talked about this on DHA after. Was Mr. Chin, you were there for that, right? I think I was. Well, they had the guy, OneWire, the guy who was the... Um, the the SCADA, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the yeah. SCADA guy for the power company. We were talking about different ways to hack the <laughs> power company. And I brought up that exact method. Yeah, this anybody with the $50 can... Uh, you know, they can generate a signal that could trump a repeater and uh, take out, you know, a few air conditioners within the local area. And they say that with about 150 bucks, you could uh, get an amplifier and presumably, presumably take out a whole neighborhood and, you know, scale up from there. Uh, you know, a little bit of a directional antenna. And Anyway. Speaking of directional antennas, today's throwback Thursday picture... From the Shadow Systems <laughs> features Mr. Chin and his ham radio days. So go check it out on our Twitter account. Please continue. <laughs> that um that antenna worked fairly well, by the way. <laughs> it looked it yeah. So uh, you got it. Is there another one that you had that was about Cisco? 
Yeah, actually, today um, <clears throat> it was disclosed that Cisco ASA software, uh, their IKE version 1 and 2, has a buffer overflow vulnerability. And this is being rated as critical, like super critical, because um, it can allow you to not just reload the system, but you can, there's also RCE, so remote code execution. Um, yeah, it's been a bad few months for uh, firewall companies, but especially Cisco. Like there's that big Juniper uh, backdoor thing, but Cisco has been continuously having vulnerabilities disclosed and this one is a pretty bad one so if you are running any sort of uh, cisco asa stuff uh let us know (laughs) 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 Uh, so it affects uh cisco asa 5500 series 5500x um the asa services module for the catalyst 6500 series ooh, and the 7600 series routers uh, the ASA 1000V cloud firewall, um, the adaptive security virtual appliance, which is the ASA V, um, the Firepower 9300 ASA security module, and the ISA 3000 industrial security appliance. Swag. Yep. Oh, uh, in the workaround section, uh, they describe that there are no workarounds that address this vulnerability. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's incredible Mr. Chin you have a news item right (laughs) yes I do yes I do I uh so um in short a um federal appeals court today is um upholding the firearms conviction of a Tennessee man who um had evidence collected against him in part due to a webcam that was nailed to utility pole and used to surveil him for 10 months. Um, this went all the way up to the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and they affirmed that the conviction is good. Um, you know, the nine-year sentence uh, prevails, and because the uh, camera was in a public area, he had no expectation of privacy because the images uh, retained were no different than a passerby could have theoretically observed and honestly that's a bunch of bullshit because nobody's going to sit at your you know (laughs) look at you for 10 months and see everything that you do so the premise that i don't um, know (laughs) i'm a pretty sexy motherfucker dude i mean okay but nobody's (laughs) going to sit there and wait 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 wait, wait. you just acknowledge that i'm a sexy motherfucker i just want to point that out i i did this (laughs) is true um but nobody's gonna just gonna sit there in a lawn chair with a can of beer and watch somebody's house for you know ten months. Um, article goes on to say that uh, again, no expectation of privacy. Blah blah blah. Um, while the ATF agents could have stationed agents around the clock to observe the uh, particular residents, the fact that they used a camera to conduct the surveillance does not make the surveillance unconstitutional. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say that's kind of fucking crazy because, I mean, the difference between stationing people there like rotating on shifts and just like installing a webcam is insane. If they let that stand, they'll just go install webcams on every street corner. Yeah, uh, they already have in New Orleans. 
after Katrina, yep. they were like, oh, let us do this. Uh, yeah, in fact, Whiskey Neon took a, uh, Surveillance a, a, a nice uh, <laughs> honeymoon photo for me of my wife and I on the a street corner in uh, New Orleans. Yeah, that's right. Now, that's a surveillance selfie you definitely need to upload on Twitter. You can be the other cool one. It uh, used to be like my background picture or something like that. Uh, yeah, on uh, Twitter, if you go uh, for a search on hashtag surveillance selfie, you'll see a lot of people taking selfies with like the surveillance camera. You know how they show you a monitor at like a convenience store or uh, like Walmart will have. A, a little <laughs> monitor with all the camera views to kind of deter you. Oh, we got you on camera, you know. Um, <laughs> it's people taking selfies using that. And then there's mine, where I've yeah. used. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> like the the street uh, surveillance cameras that the city has to take the the selfie. You could add yours. It'll be a fun collection. Well, mine. Yeah, yeah, yours. Oh, yeah. That, that was actually pretty cool. I was on the phone with Whiskey Neon while we were walking through the French Quarter, and <laughs> we were trying to position ourselves just right. He's like, no, no, to the left, to the left, <laughs> over by that guy with the orange jacket. Yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> Isn't that just insane? I love that shit. Like, being able to uh, view a webcam that's surveilling a, a street in, you know, in New Orleans, and I'm hundreds of miles away on the phone. Instructing yeah. a friend to move a little to the left. <laughs> Actually, I'm curious. How did you find those cameras in the first place anyways? Like, what would you tell someone if they want to try and find stuff like that in their own city? Um, find out from the Aaron database your municipal government's IP uh, allocation and uh, I'll run this thing called InMap, our Nessus, on the entire range. And you will find uh, IP addresses that will be hosting cameras and stuff like that. A lot of them are just simple IP cameras. So you can do that relatively easily. Could you show Dan? Yeah, that's another resource. I have a pro account. I haven't tried looking for cameras on that, actually. Oh, I do all the time. It's hilarious. I look for uh, oh, I look like for the same IP space that my ISP has me on, like the same CIDR, <laughs> Flash 24. And you'd be surprised how many people have these just webcams open at home. Yeah, like the, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Now, there's this, like, Asian couple I used to watch all the time. And <laughs> 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 just sit there, oh, my God. It was, like, the dirtiest apartment you have ever seen. It was disgusting. <laughs> there was just shit everywhere. And they would just, like, live in this, like, just trash heap. It was very interesting to watch. Like, imagine, it's like the most <laughs> amazing reality show <laughs> imaginable. You're just watching some people live their life in utter and complete filth. Like, extreme hoarders. Uh, Live? Thing. Yeah, it was it was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> uh, uh, I've, got, uh, I've got something else. All right, we'll do it, uh, one more story before we go over to Florida. Okay, it's a little less newsy, more educational. So... You know, the world of InfoSec or hacking um, has many different areas that you can focus on or specialize in, and sometimes it's hard to know everything. So there are a lot of good resources online. Um, one that uh, I stumbled upon that I found interesting was uh, 
basically it's uh, malware evasion in virtualized environments. So like how malware can detect that it's running in a virtual machine, which has been around for quite a while. And if you talk to anybody that works in forensics, you know, they, they have to be very careful and try and counter this type of uh, stuff that's built into malware so that it doesn't know that it's being run in uh, a VM or in, uh, you know, like Ada Pro or something like that. <clears throat> um, so this article is called How Malware Detects Virtualized Environment and Its Countermeasures and Overview. And it's a brief article by the InfoSec Institute, but it's a pretty good primer on just getting familiar with how malware can detect these type of things. And uh, I'll give you the URL here. Uh, for anybody that is interested. Actually, it's kind of long, so um, you can just go to tinyurl.com slash herpes has Mr. Chin, and uh, that will take you to the uh, to the article. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was that URL one last time? <laughs> tinyurl.com slash herpes has Mr. Chin. <laughs> that's awesome (laughs) all right well thank you uh for that story um let's uh let's move on to everyone's favorite segment of this show straight out of florida Yeah, well, there's a there's actually a lot of shit, crazy shit going on in Florida, but one of them stood out above and beyond all the other ones. So, down in Jupiter, Florida, uh, a man recently got arrested for something he did back in like October or something. So, good old Joshua James, 23, was. Uh, charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, illegal possession of an alligator, and some other shit. Because he went up to a Wendy's drive-thru, you know, placed an order, pulled up to the second window for it, and then threw a a three-and-a-half-foot alligator in through the drive-thru window. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, he's apparently a prankster. Oh, is it one of those YouTube assholes? Oh, uh, no, I wish. I should have thought to look for YouTube video of this. There was a different news article I found where his mom was defending him, going like, oh, he's he's just a prankster. He's just a, you know, loves to pull jokes on people with alligators. <laughs> That's some uh, joke. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Florida man. That's Florida man. So, That's Florida band, straight out of Florida. So, Whiskey. <laughs> yeah. You're a prankster. Yeah. Uh, would you ever throw an alligator at somebody? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not at a Wendy's, though. Probably like Mr. Chin. <laughs> <laughs> and Wendy's employees don't get paid enough. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't like pulling pranks on like random strangers like that that don't deserve it. Um yeah, it's just so I would deserve an alligator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't see wow. what the confusion is. Wow. I would only I would only throw an alligator at a friend. So, <laughs> like, a mother, like a good um, friend, I would only mother of fuck. Yeah, I just found my keys. What? 
<laughs> I've been looking for my keys and I just fucking found them. <laughs> well, that's that's an excellent Florida man. So, thank you, Zandy. No, um, no problem. And so uh, now that brings us to our main topic of the night, or what we like to call your mom. Come one, come all. Engaging your mom in three, two, one. Activate. On June 5th, 2013, Americans were shocked to find out that over 120 million Verizon subscribers' call records were being handed over to the FBI, who then handed this information over to the NSA. This information was strictly metadata and caused an immediate reaction from the media, lawmakers, and citizens alike. As everyone was trying to soak this leak in, the next day on June 6, Silicon Valley was turned upside down when the revelations of the PRISM program were leaked and shortly after, the identity of the leaker, Edward Snowden, was made public. For the first time, many Americans were learning of the FISA courts and the repercussions of these secret courts that were authorizing surveillance on a scale that is almost impossible to comprehend. Some called these programs a necessary act to protect us from terrorists. Some called it treason, and some called it an Aurelian nightmare straight out of 1984. One thing everyone could agree on, however, was that these leaks would change the way the entire world viewed surveillance and sparked a discussion on where exactly we draw the line between security and liberty. As these leaks continued, these clandestine operations and programs became headline news. And almost three years since the initial leaks, names like PRISM, Tempora, X-Keyscore, Stateroom, and Muscular filled media reports and angered citizens of nations worldwide. In reaction to the Snowden leaks, we have witnessed half-assed reforms, diplomatic hang-ups, and protests performed on a global scale. A surge of pro-privacy tools and products have since flooded the market, and in its 2016 presidential election, we have actually have candidates being questioned directly about surveillance programs and digital privacy rights. Yes, the Snowden leaks have taught us a lot, but before Snowden, there were Perry Fulwick, Margaret Newsham, William Benny, Russ Tice, Thomas Drake, Mark Klein, Joseph Nancio, and many others who warned, informed, and risked everything in an attempt to bring to light the surveillance programs and spark controversy needed to enact change. All of these individuals have contributed vital insight into how the United States government spies on its citizens, allies, and enemies. To wrap up our three-part series on phone freaking, tonight we examine the surveillance capacity and methodology of how the government spies on us using telephony, a.k.a. Fed freaking. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about government surveillance programs in regards to telephony. And uh, Mr. Chin, being the subject matter expert on this, is going to kick it off for us right now. You know, I kind of thought you were joking at the beginning, but now that I know you're serious, I'm kind of screwed because I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, you had two weeks to research and you're dropping the ball. I, I am. All right. Uh, no, that was actually a joke. I did not ex- expect you to to be Follow this through thing. on anything? Yeah. That's good. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I guess if we want to look at uh, government surveillance capacity in regards to telephony, uh, the easiest place to start at as far as uh, modern day repercussions 
is the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act that was passed in 1994 by Congress to make the lives of law enforcement officers a lot easier. Um, with digital phone switching systems and mobile phones and other innovations that occurred, the Justice Department complained about the difficulty in carrying out telephone surveillance. So, Kaleo was the answer to this problem in their eyes and a mandatory system to allow law enforcement full access to digitally tap into phone systems with a warrant was developed. Um, and that, that started in 94. And then this thing called VoIP occurred. And so in 2007, Kalea was revised uh, with provisions to update the law so that broadband and VoIP were included. That's how Kalea came to be. Are any of you guys familiar with Kalea? Heard about it. Um, I, I didn't I've know that it also it. covered VoIP. I thought that was, uh, I thought it like didn't, I didn't recall that it was amended. Well, the, the key item in the revision uh, is actually uh, quote verbatim, uh, a telecommunications care shall not be responsible for decrypting or ensuring the government's ability to decrypt any communication encrypted by a subscriber or customer unless the encryption was provided by the carrier and the carrier possesses the information necessary to decrypt the communication. So that's that's the okay. the revision. So so it works. Basically, this is the rule of thumb. If you're uh, a SIP provider or a VoIP provider in general, and you provide access to the PSTN, uh, then you have to have Kalea compliance in place. If you are just a uh, SIP provider that's doing SIP to SIP, then you're you, you don't have to worry about it. So. For me, that's concerning because of, uh, you know, you have uh, Silent Circles offerings with the Black Phone. Uh, they offer a premium application that allows for encrypted phone calls. But this encrypted phone call system also can make calls to the PSTN. And, of course, it doesn't provide encryption in that scenario. But they are still interfacing with the PSTN, so therefore they have to legally be Kalea compliant. So hopefully, uh, their, their their Kalea boxes are at the edge of the PSTN and do not actually contain anything in between uh, the users. Because even though it claims to be ZRTP encrypted, and that would provide into an encryption, so. That exact provision I quoted would eliminate them from having to be compliant. If that is in fact the case, then we don't have to worry. Even if they were complying and giving that information, all of it would be into an encrypted. All they would have left is metadata. But uh, the scenario is it's a proprietary program. I mean, you're getting a binary app. There's servers there. How do you know that they're actually encrypting anything? It could all just be smoke and mirrors for all you know. So, I trust Phil Zimmerman, uh, <laughs> but I don't. It, there's an opportunity there for abuse, is all I'm saying. Uh, this is true. Uh, so yeah, the the bill is uh, very important uh, if you're hosting uh, any kind of voice communications, and uh, when you look at uh, encrypted voice communications, that provision excludes you. Uh, and you don't have any responsibility uh, to decrypt that and provide that information. 
um, and metadata, of course, uh, according to Edward Snowden, is more valuable than the content of the calls itself uh, when you're looking at usernames and internet-based uh, solutions that kind of, you know, provides more anonymity versus traditional phone numbers, you know. So, um, yeah, so uh, Kalea has been around for 20 years, and uh, there's other uses like the PRISM program and uh, the NSA spying scandal with AT&T to look at, but uh, Kalea itself has been in place and uh, actually provides some interesting uh, features for law enforcement. And one of these um, was uh, DCSNet that uh, was produced, uh, the, the report was re produced by the EFF in 2007 um, because they followed a series of FOIA requests and uh, learned about DCSNet for the first time. What this uh, application actually does is it collects phone numbers, calls, and text messages from landline, mobile, and VoIP lines across the U.S. in real time. Uh, so, if you're familiar with Prism, it's sort of similar to, uh, you know, it's like the telephony equivalent to Prism in a lot of ways. And uh, this uh, application allows agents to have a point-and-click interface to the system, and it's all connected over a private encrypted fiber optic network provided by Sprint. Uh, it's a Windows application. It's got a, like a shitty user interface, as you would expect from a government application. <laughs> uh, but some of the options that you have are like target name, phone number, case ID, start date, stop date, start time, stop time, warrant ID, uh, a WAV file, uh, warrant type, last call number, the telephone company, and... Uh, some other options that are specific to their logging uh, interface. So the DCS3000 uh, network uh, basically connects uh, this entire system together uh, with field offices, uh, FBI field offices all over the United States. Uh, if you can actually look up on the EFS website and see the graphic and I mean it <laughs> It kind of looks like the fiber optic uh, backbone network. All of the spaces that they have these in place kind of coincide with that. Uh, in, in a similar regard here, uh, in a March 2006 Kalea report from the Inspector General, an ad hoc system named Red Hook was revealed to be able to collect voice and data calls and then process and display the intercepted information and the absence of a Kalea solution. So that's really significant to point out there. Uh, Red Hook can collect all this information in the absence of a Kalea solution. So what the fuck is that about? Uh, you know, like Red Hook uh, collects just metadata. Uh, so phone numbers, timestamps, and uh, po the possibility for other identifiable information. Um, and Digital Storm uh, is a part of a DCSNet that intercepts full audio conversations and text messages. It can also target. Uh, uh, it can also locate a target's location using cell tower triangulation. 
So what do you think of that? That's just like, that's not even the NSA. That's our like own federal government internal, you know, old school Kaleo shit right there. That's terrifying that's, enough. That's messed up. I, I'm, yeah. I've always been really interested into Red Hook. There's like barely any information about this program. But the fact that it can, it collects the metadata without the presence of a Kalea solution, like what the fuck? Does this mean that they've tapped in illegally uh, without the consent of these uh, telecom companies? What the fuck does that even mean? It's very interesting, and I would love to know more about that. Um, but yeah, so moving on here, uh, how can... Uh, and, and again, this isn't even the NSA Snowden docs revealed. This is all just local, uh, local government, state government, and federal government uh, internal domestic technology that we're talking about so far. Um, one thing that is ubiquitous now uh, are obviously mobile phones, and with mobile phones, SMS uh, is <laughs> also ubiquitous. Has been for. A uh, very long time now, but uh, it, it released. It was released commercially in 1994, and uh, the original standard has had revisions after revisions, and uh, the current revision is uh, 3GPP 23.041. That's the official spec that we're currently at as far as the short message services regarding. Um, so. Uh, SMS is much more than just a text message that's 160 characters long. Um, there's different uh, classes and types of messages that you can actually send from an SMS, uh, uh, you know, from one device to another. So, for an example here, a class 1 SMS message is a normal run-of-the-mill text that you get uh, that everyone thinks of when they think SMS. Class Zero, uh, however, uh, it's known as a flash SMS, and that's used for emer emergency texts like Amber Alerts, uh, the Severe Storm shit, um, and uh, it, it's it's a, it, it shows up. Now that's actually more on the lines of the way you, things used to be, uh, probably five years ago. Now there's different systems in place, but. Uh, the earlier those kind of alerts came through with uh, SMS class zero. Um, but you can actually download applications on like Android if you have a rooted phone or on iOS if it's jailbroken to send a class zero SMS from your phone. Um, <laughs> to, a, to a single recipient or like broadcast it? Oh, no, to a single recipient. Oh, cool. um, but let me, let me explain what makes this so cool in, in, the, uh, in the actual SMS spec itself. So, when a mobile transmitted message is class zero and the MS has the capacity of displaying short messages, the MS shall display the message immediately and send an, 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 uh, an acknowledgement to the SC when the message has successfully reached the MS, irrespective of whether there is memory available in the SIM or ME. The message shall not be automatically stored in the SIM RME. And you're like, what the fuck did you just say, dude? Because those abbreviations <laughs> made no sense. 
So what this actually translates to is when a SMS is class zero and the phone is able to display an SMS, the phone shall display the message immediately and send it an acknowledgement to the tower when the message has successfully reached the phone regardless if there is memory available on the SIM card or phone. The phone will not automatically store the SMS. So this is a crazy uh, thing. You're, you're not used to hearing this type of thing. This is not just a message. This is sending a message that takes over your entire screen and brings it up front. It doesn't store it in like your messages app per se. And it also tells the tower that you received, or like received it, like a read receipt would work on email. Uh, only with this, you can't disable it. It just happens. Kind of like those um, presidential emergency notifications, something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, not the notification itself, but, you know. Yes. It's saying, it's saying, and that's what I was saying is that that was previously used for those emergency alerts, Amber Alerts, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, some applications may use that to display um, like OTPs or something like that. Um, so that's a class zero SMS, but there is also a type zero SMS. And as part of the spec, I'm not going to uh, uh, go into, to, well, I, I guess I, I might as well say it so that you understand. A short message type zero indicates that the ME must acknowledge the, re the receipt of the short message, but shall discard its contents. This means that the MS shall be able to receive the type zero short message irrespective of whether there is memory available in the SIM or ME or not, the MS shall not indicate the receipt of the Type 0 short message to the user. The short message shall neither, neither be stored in the SIM or the ME. So that may have sounded a whole lot similar to the Class 0 message, but the difference, and this is really significant, is that the MS shall not indicate the receipt of the Type 0 message to the user. So that change is really significant. If you get a type zero message, you will not. You don't get, know it. Yeah, you will not get the overlay. You will not even know that you received the message whatsoever. And what that does is you receive that message. Obviously, you have no idea that you have, and it sends that you read it back to the tower. So, damn. So now tower triangulation. Exactly. So when you've heard about uh, police pinging someone or the cell phone company pinging someone, that's the message that you're actually sending. Uh, and how this ties in with cellular tracking of your location is, well, engineering. I mean, if you think about it, when you're driving down the highway, um, you've probably talked on the phone while you're driving down the highway. And uh, if you think about it, how the fuck are you able to have a conversation, at least, you know, some of the time, uh, the calls drop all the time, but um, when you're driving down the highway, you're talking on the phone for an hour straight. How the fuck does, how, how do they even manage to do that? Um, you know, an uninterrupted phone call for an hour when you're driving 70 miles an hour down the interstate is a pretty impressive engineering feat. Um, so how that works is you have clever engineering uh, and the infrastructure in place where you have towers that have an over overlapping signal range to, that ensures constant coverage you know you're not going to have a tower at the very edge of uh, where the signal strength will be 
they overlap so that it can perform a uh, carryover handshake to just hand it off to the next tower. So um, when you're you're going to constantly be in range of multiple towers. Uh, so determining your location using multilateration can now occur. So uh, multilateration techniques uh, are, uh, you know, there's a couple of options there that carriers use, and obviously by extension, law enforcement can use it as well. Uh, so in the U.S., cell phone tracking is legally required by the FCC as part of the E911 system. Uh, if you've used VoIP, you would be very familiar with E911 because you have to put in a physical address for where you reside. Or if you use Wi-Fi calling from your carrier, they also require that you put in a physical address of where you're going to be so that if you use 911, then they have an address. Um, a lot of the E911 system is really cool, but part of it is that they require that cell phone tracking be something that uh, is part of a mandate for all carriers. So as of 2005, wire wireless carriers uh, have been required to provide GPS location to LEOs or emergency services at, at their request uh, with an accuracy of up to 100 feet. So uh, there's a couple of ways to pull this off, and uh, it's all very interesting how it all ties together. Uh, the older method uh, that they used to use, and the most basic and cheapest way to do it, is called uplink time difference of arrival, or UTDOA. And it's a network level locationing technique that measures the time it takes for a Type 0 SMS to travel from the mobile phone to two or more of the location measurement units to determine the location of the device. The, the, LMU, the LMUs can be placed at a cell site independently or operate in a mobile format, aka something like a Stingray or a party van. Um, the UTDOA has a large adaption rate due to the fact that uh, it has a lack of special hardware needed uh, in the mobile phone to enable tracking. You're just using uh, SMS uh, type zero. Uh, so that method is usually accurate anywhere between 100 to 20 feet. Just the most basic simple one can actually pin you down to a 20 feet radius just by using that, uh, uh, you know, locationing based off of latency basically. So that's the way we started it all off and that's again the most easiest way but uh, all of your smartphones are equipped with a, a GPS chipset uh, that you use for navigation and other app uses um, and the way that works is that you're actually triangulating uh, uh, tri your location between at least four satellites and then the computation is made uh, based off of that information where your location would be. Um, and the GPS could, of course, also be used to locate the phone in an extremely highly accurate manner. Um, but the thing with that is that it's not as reliable as UT at DOA uh, due to the horrible signal strength uh, when you're indoors or in like a wooded area with a lot of trees or in a city uh, with all the obstructions. Um, so it's not always the best method, uh, you know, as far as just going off of a straight GPS uh, chip. 
So that's why we have this thing called a GPS or assisted GPS. So what that is, is a combination of both of those technologies. And uh, all of the phones in the United States today have an AG GPS chip in the phone, regardless of if it actually has the GPS function or not. So a flip phone that you go and buy today is going to have a GPS inside of it with the GPS chip. But you may think that there's no GPS because it's a fucking flip phone and you cannot, you know, have a GPS uh, function on your phone. So in that case, UTDOA is used as the primary uh, positioning method and then GPS, you know, being more accurate if that's available. So that's how we basically uh, see people getting tracked in the United States domestically. And uh, also, obviously, in other places around the world. Um, and it all revolves around SMS Type 0 uh, at its core. Uh, so, in 2011, a German citizen, uh, Malti Spritz, engaged in a lawsuit with Dutch Telecom, who is the parent of T-Mobile, uh, to retrieve six months of the information that Dutch Telecom retained of Spritz's whereabouts and phone usage. After receiving the information, he learned that he had been tracked more than 35,000 times. And he did something really special with this. He uploaded all of the logs and a playable map uh, to engage debate on the matter. So um, this wasn't a dude who was targeted. He was not a criminal. He was not missing. He was just some dude. <laughs> and, uh, and the wireless carrier and government uh, tracked him as if he were a criminal. Holy shit, do you know, uh, do you have a URL for any of that, or was it just something else? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think I do, uh, I mean, if you just Google his name, first off. How, how do you spell it? Oh, yeah, that might help. It's, uh, <laughs> M-A-L-T-E-S-P-I-T-S. Uh, huh. You can just Google tell-all-telephone. And you can see the playable map. It'll go through the entire life that he lived and everywhere he went. And he actually did a TED talk on it as well. So Yeah, I'm seeing that. Wow, holy shit. Yeah, so that is a real world example of just a common motherfucker living his life, being tracked uh, down to a very accurate level. So if you're not terrified yet, well, sit down, kids. It's about to get a whole lot better. Um, have uh, any of you ever heard of uh, this guy named John Ordito before? Nope. Nope. No. All right. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Buster, as he was known. Buster. Yeah. Uh, John, uh, John Ordito was a capo for the Genovese Mafia in New York until he was arrested in 2006. Uh, so like most gangster, he he like reached a point in his uh, life when uh, Leo's decided it was time to get involved and try to file charges on him. Um, but you know, he murdered like multiple people when he was younger. Uh, and then, oh well, we need to actually do something about this guy. He, he's really old at that point. Um, so they investigated him over labor racketeering, um, and uh, that's when this whole 
you know, who gives a shit about this guy thing comes to light. Um, he, he wasn't special uh, in, in the case of him doing anything technical. Uh, the only reason why I'm bringing him up is because of the court case that he had. Um, when, when the news of the case came out, it was really interesting because they described uh, that a, a fundamental part of the investigation that led to his arrest was the existence of a roving bug. So, uh, the scenario that you'll normally see in like a movie, a uh, spy movie or whatever, uh, you'll see like some sketchy dudes get in a room and be like, yeah, we're going to plan stuff, see? And some guy's got like this little beeping device and he's waving it all over the room, you know, an RF analyzer uh, to try to find bugs. Uh, well, uh, they, uh, this mafia actually did that. And uh, they, they were meeting in this local Italian restaurant and they used one of those RF analyzers and uh, unfortunately they found a bug. And so the FBI was all butthurt because, you know, they found the bug and now he's super paranoid and all this shit. So they really thought that they were screwed in their investigation. But, uh, yeah, that ended up uh, not lasting long because, uh, uh, yeah, they, they basically uh, put a warrant out for his phone to put a roving bug uh, on his cell phone. And... Uh, so a roving bug was placed on his cell phone and it was actually the content of that roving bug uh, was used in his and other people's uh, conventions, uh, convictions. Uh, so what the fuck is a roving bug? We, we, in the court documents, you can actually read them referring to it and, and but there's no specifics and they've never commented on what the fuck the roving bug actually was. So, was this a physical bug that they put inside of the cell phone somehow? Or was the bug a malicious software program that was planted on his phone? Um, or did the phone itself have a built-in feature or backdoor? Uh, we, will, we will probably never know, uh, but uh, when asked, uh, Sprint who is his carrier, denied that they had any knowledge of the case and claimed to have no idea how it was done. Uh, so, <laughs> a roving bug is pretty concerning, uh, being that this was a dumb phone, probably running some shit like Symbian. They could only run applications that were like JRE applications for your mobile phone. So the chances of like some kind of malware are relatively slim. What the fuck is a roving bug? And, you know, is this something that we actually need to worry about in all of our phones or, or what? It, it, it's something to think about. Uh, but that's, that's with dumb phones. We're in the smartphone age now. And uh, there is an absolute frantic attempt by the five eyes to uh, be able to have that roving bug functionality with smartphones. I mean, they, they've been actively working to undermine security measures put in place by every smartphone maker. Um, you know, they, they, what's their goal in this? They want to steal your contacts, your texts, your emails, and any information. Uh, but they want to turn it into a remote bug so that they can listen to their targets and track their every move. So, 
the phones being the gateway to every aspect in our life, uh, if you're a target, they own you at that point. And it's really concerning when you tie all of this together, what the fuck is the limit here? This is stuff that we just know about. This is stuff that you don't even have to go into Snowden leaks to actually know about. And we have all of this uh, tracking ability and tapping ability. Uh, what what do we not know about? What is there out there that we we're unaware of and are at risk with our communications? It's very very scary to think about. Uh, so yeah, do you guys have any any things to throw in there? Well, that one's pretty crazy because it's I mean, like you said, it's a dumb phone and we don't know how exactly they managed to put the bug on it. I mean, as far as the roving bug goes. They could have done something at the carrier level, but uh, even then, they're doing so. Uh, apparently, they're doing stuff where the telco just doesn't even know about it, which is interesting. Well, see, that's where I, I think about the um, the roving bug, and we go back to the whole uh, DCS net in uh, the in the Red Hook. Or, you know, Red Hook was collecting metadata. But who's to say that Red Hook doesn't, you know, also record calls? Because this, the key of that was that it gathered it without uh, a Kalea device being in place. You know, and, and Kalea devices are anywhere from dedicated tapping machines that are really hardcore to basically with VoIP and broadband providers just storing PCAP files. And allowing that to be replayed back to law enforcement. I mean, honestly, most of your VoIP and uh, broadband Kalea compliance devices just provide PCAP files. So, uh, yeah, what is this carrier level? Did Sprint not know about it? Um, were, were they served with an NSL? Uh, what, what's the deal here, you know? Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah, definitely. Mr. Chin, what do you think about that? I think um, it's kind of sad that, you know, in some ways that we're finding out about this years after the fact. And, you know, like, you know, even since 2005, you know, has had this ability. So um, I think it's good that we're, you know, finding out about all this stuff. But something to keep in mind is that at least since 2005 and probably further beyond that, you know, this has been going on. And like you were saying, it's kind of scared to think about what is going on that we don't know about yeah i mean this was 10 years ago yeah it's definitely must have advanced since then at least technologically right yeah and it definitely has if you look at the the snowden docs and uh you know the the surveillance capabilities there uh it's on a whole nother level but this is specifically for domestic use now nsa cannot legally uh collect intelligence signals intelligence on u.s citizens that are domestic um i you know that's where the five eyes works together so you know we have uh british intelligence canadians uh australians uh doing the spying on on u.s citizens to get around the NSA's, uh, you know, prohibition to spy on American citizens and vice versa. They all work together 
<laughs> to, to do it anyways. But this is stuff that you can actually be thrown in jail for without any real defense because it's if they have a warrant, then this is all fair game. And we know how easily they hand out warrants. So, yeah. what's what's some of the the battles that we're fighting legally in regards to this and our freedoms and uh, in, in response to Fed freaking? Um, Zandy, didn't you have some stuff that you could bring up about that? Um, I went and I got a few legal things pulled together. I didn't look closely at specific battles. I mean, DFF and ACLU sue down now and then, but I'm not sure how any of those cases are going or if there even are any, because who knows, they could have uh, run their course. But typically, you know, they'll try and keep something going. Um, I just kind of pulled some things together about how this kind of surveillance was being legally justified. Um, so, you know, then this is after Kalia. We're all familiar with the Patriot Act. I mean, Kalia had been around, uh, I believe, before then, and so has other legislation. So. Electronic surveillance is certainly nothing new, but this, the sort of stuff that I think most of us are most familiar with or most aware of is starting with the Patriot Act, which, uh, if we remember, was passed in almost a month, you know, a bit longer than a month after 9-11, where legislators were just falling over themselves to show how much they loved America. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, this kind of very controversial bad piece of legislation was extended uh you know at least once by obama where back in 2011 about 10 years or so after it was first passed it was extended and there's a lot of i mean there's a lot of stuff in the patriot act uh regarding things like money laundering and being able to detain immigrants indefinitely but you know the the stuff we're focusing on right now is the surveillance and so that is the uh, section 215 that everyone's probably heard quite a bit about. So the good news is, is that, you know, at least that Patriot Act stuff was uh, expiring. In fact, a lot of that stuff expired in June 1st of last year, 2015. And then by June 2nd, they were pretty much reinstated entirely by the Freedom Act, which is uh, interesting choices of names, I got to say. It's always the best marketing. Yeah, I know. It's it's terribly depressing. Um, but anyways, so Section 215 is known as the NSA's We Get to Spy on Everybody uh, legal justification. And that was amended by the Freedom Act in, much at, in as much as the data storage was moved from the NSA to the telco. So then the NSA goes to the telco to get the data. So essentially, and at that point, it's not the NSA that's doing any of the harvesting. It's the, it's the Togo, and the NSA just kind of swings by in a pick, proverbial pickup truck and says, "All right, you know, I'm here to collect the data." Yeah, it's totally kind of just like shifting the goalposts, almost where it's saying, "Oh, if the government can't do this, then we'll just make somebody else do it, and then come by and pick it up." Of course, that's the best way to go about doing it, right? <laughs> yep. But then even if you say, okay, well, if that specific legal justification went away, there's also a lot of question about uh, FISA Section 702 being used, which is supposed to be uh, restricted to, it's supposed to be better restricted, where 
you can't intentionally target U.S. citizens or targets in the U.S. But um, but if we just so happen to, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of question about that, especially because Snowden leaks somewhere in there. I remember seeing something about how their criteria for if they thought someone was in the U.S. or not was basically 51% confidence, which is flipping a coin. Um, right. So it's kind of a case of we're going to collect the data if we feel like it. Um, <laughs> but even then, if this is stuff that has to have a warrant through the FISA court, then that's a rubber stamp anyways. Um, and then if that fails, then there's a bit of uh, concern over executive order 12333 being used as justification. So, um, as far as like, as far as actual laws and executive orders go for legal justification for surveillance like this, there's, it's, it's pretty extensive and it's pretty clear that, um, basically they're interested in keeping their surveillance powers as much as they can and finding whatever loopholes necessary to keep them. So first off, there's that kind of weird ideological drive where they have to keep this power and they'll never give it up. But then if you think about it, the amount of the, the, the amount of budget that's going towards various intel agencies and uh, contractors, as well as how much infrastructure they already have, means that there's a lot of incentive to keep these programs just so that you don't have a bunch of equipment going to waste. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's like the worst. Just it totally is. It totally is. So they're they're building that whole new data center in Utah. It's already and, done. Oh, it's already done. Yeah, Damn. That was years ago when they started building it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't been keeping up on that one. And I, so now they have this multi-million dollar data center. And what are they going to do? Shut it down just because? You know, some just civil rights activists are like, hey, this is actually illegal. No, they're going to do whatever the fuck they want. Yes, yes, definitely. So and that's kind of where we're at as far as the laws being made. And I went and dug up a few other things. I do have something from a somewhat recent court case, since you're wanting me to talk about battles. Yeah, uh, yeah. This one is interesting. It'll be neat to see how this case goes. But uh, basically, back in... 2014, Baltimore cops were trying to track down this Karen Andrews guy to arrest him for attempted murder. And to track him down, you know, physical location, they used a device called a Hailstorm, which is like a stingray. And they used yeah. it without any kind of request for approval. So they just went, took this thing out of, you know, whatever locker they keep it in at the police department and set it up and went and got this guy. So as the case goes on, the judge finds out there was no kind of uh, approval process for using this. And they, the judge then accepted the defense's request to suppress that evidence, right? Yeah, rightfully so. Yeah, you would think so. So the prosecutors, you know, they want to get a conviction. They appeal that. But they had a really interesting bit of logic, right? So their claim was that Andrew's decision to have his phone turned on indicated he was consenting to be tracked because oh, phones have off switches are you fucking kidding me well that's what no 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 no. what the fuck yeah <laughs> yeah exactly well so, well that that should be a you know it should be noted at that point 
uh, Snowden, while being interviewed by Brian Williams, said, and I quote, any mobile phone can be turned on remotely, end quote. So Yeah, that's that's really interesting, too. I'm curious what he means by that. Like, if you take the battery out, can it still be turned on? I don't know. <laughs> no, I doubt that. Or that would just be trolled by the manufacturers if that were the case. I mean, yeah, who knows? electrically uh, speaking, that's it's that. not, but... Uh, you could yeah. have a capacitor charged. Well, I mean, going. the question is, like, firmware-wise, does turning off the phone mean that you turn off the baseband and the system-on-chip stuff as far as the modem goes? Who knows? I, I don't know. It could be Someone on a... Uh, the shit out of that. It could be on a, uh, kind of like a... What do you call it? Uh, standby? Not a standby, but, like, when you can... You send the magic packet on the network to wake up... Uh, wake on land. Wake on land. Yeah, oh, yeah. A wake on land type system for cell phones. Yeah, you would only need for the modem to be on the cell network and just listening for that, I guess. A Man, class zero so message. much fun with that capability, but I digress. Yeah, but I mean, so thankfully this is just some legal argument in an ongoing court case. It'll hopefully amount to nothing, but it's really weird to see this kind of logic being put into place where they're saying, oh, because you have a phone turned on, you actually did want to be tracked. I mean... Like, two things here. First off, this is the same exact logic in the whole, like, oh, your skirt was sh so short you wanted to be raped. So, first off, that's already fucked up. And, and second off, like, the reality of cell phones is they're going to be turned on in your pocket all the time. Yeah. Then you just put it in the terms of service that you, you just want to be, you just want to be tracked and arrested. Turned on in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, so there's that. It's fucked up. But at least for the most part, there still has to be some kind of warrant for your data, right? Yeah. Um, oh, actually, wait, no. that's not right. Yeah, <laughs> parallel construction. Yeah, that's fucked up, too. I didn't even do any digging on that. But there was a good resource I found about when warrants were required. And so there's definitely cases where, depending on the data the cops are after, they don't need a kind of warrant. They might just need to get some kind of court uh, approval. Like, as far as phone calls go, they'll need a warrant to get the recording of the phone call, like with Kalia and stuff. But if they just want to get the incoming and outgoing numbers for the calls, they only need a court order that demonstrates it's relevant to an ongoing investigation. So they can do metadata collection. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, in some cases is way more valuable than having a recording of a phone call. That's what Edward Snowden said. He, he, he said that he would prefer metadata uh, as an analyst over actual recorded conversations 100% of the time because metadata doesn't lie. Yeah, I mean... There's, it's much harder to hide metadata. You know, you don't have to... If you're listening to a conversation, there might be code and other shit in it. A cipher, but, yeah. But as far as metadata goes, right now, a lot of the systems, like typical phone calls, if you want to communicate with someone, you have to reach them, and there's no way to hide that. And it gives you a very easy way to map out social networks. So Definitely. If, you, if you can't hide who you're communicating to, and you can't and, and you still have to like communicate with your group of friends or people you associate with then that's an easy way to just figure out who knows who and find all the interesting people to target 
Exactly, and that's uh, and that whole social networking tracking part of it, uh, using the tower domes. That's that's uh, what I uh, mentioned in uh, the obsec episode, obsec failure episode on the Italian job. Uh, if you look, if you look up the uh, uh, the obsec failures of spies on YouTube, watch that video. You will see that it exactly play out for you. You can see the actual uh, imagery of CIA agents and their social network all being connected via cell phone metadata. This yep. is the um, Italy one, correct? Right. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Italian job. Uh, but yeah, yeah. The, you know, stingrays are a huge valuable asset to it. Like you said, uh, that was the Hellstorm, right? Or Hellfire, what is it called? Yeah, yeah. So back in Baltimore, that case, that was the Hailstorm. Hailstorm, yeah. And there's a, like, Stingray is just the most popular one, By but Harris. there's a million devices and dirt boxes that right. do all the same things. Yeah, yeah. It's now a whole whole market. Uh, the, the surveillance market exists, and uh, you can look up the spy files on WikiLeaks and actually see brochures from... Uh, all of these surveillance companies around the world selling uh, products to law enforcement and oppressive governments to, uh, uh, you know, spy on their citizens. All great, honorable American companies selling technologies to oppressive governments. Uh, yeah. Gotta love and it. Speaking of stingrays, just before we recorded, there was a quick little story from The Intercept. Uh, basically, the NYPD... New York Police Department used stingrays a thousand times since 2008, which breaks down to about 125 times a year. And similarly to getting phone records of who you're calling, they don't require a warrant for that. They just need a court order called a pen register. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so 125 times a year. So every couple days, the cops find a reason to pull a stingray out, go play with it, and you know who knows what they do it emulates a whole fucking cell phone tower they could you know everyone that connects to the tower as far as i know they can get the location of and intercept calls and traffic wow but uh so yeah you've got who you're calling they can get without a warrant they just need a court order stingrays they can use without a warrant they can get your location um they may not even need a court order. They can just approach your cell phone provider. For example, uh, in 2012, Sprint revealed that over that whole year, they gave location info to police, uh, let's see, 67,000 times. AT&T was at 77.8 thousand times. And for text messages, if the text messages are older than 180 days, then the police will only need a court order to get them. Uh, which I think means that if they're younger than 180 days, they'll need a warrant. But there's that whole weird email thing where it's treated similarly to email. Yeah, you gotta love it. And funny enough, providers, when they provide that information, can charge the police for it. Like, I think it was for location or something else, Sprint would charge $35. Uh, each time they had a request from the cops for it, so <laughs> wow. you'd assume you would assume this just covers the cost, but for all we know, they could also be just making a profit off of it. Yeah, I can't imagine it being that difficult. 
if it was, then they would have automated the process heavily to keep it from being so difficult. Wow. I, I, well, you know, one thing there that you might see, why, why the fuck would a carrier want to uh, participate with law enforcement and just hand that information over? Where's their patriotic spirit? Well, <laughs> uh, it's actually not good if you're a telecom company and you actually want to stand up to the government and not just hand over that information. Sprint, like I mentioned here, in this case, they're handing over that information willingly. Uh, they also operate the fiber optic network for DCS now, so they want that contract to exist. So being friendly is beneficial. And if you think that I'm just some kind of nut job conspiracy theorist, uh, look into Joseph uh, Nachio. Uh, this guy was the CEO of Quest. He actually uh, went over to Quest in 97 after he left AT&T. Works his way up and everything. Uh, he, uh, you know, expanded the company and, uh, you know, was doing really well. And then in 2001, uh, in February, the NSA asked Quest to participate in a surveillance program. And uh, Nancio, uh said that when they declined, that the NSA, uh, to, in, to punish Quest, dropped a contract that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And so uh, then Nachio uh, began selling his stock off and uh, because of things that were occurring with Quest, uh, their stock began to uh, decline in May. Uh, so it went from $38 a share to $2 by August of 2002. Ooh. Yeah, and so he resigned from Quest in 2002, and uh, then in uh, 2005, and uh, he and six other former Quest executives were sued by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, the SEC accused them of a massive three billion dollar financial fraud between 1999 and 2002. Uh, for benefiting from inflated stock. Uh, so, um, basically, his whole angle on this is that he was just selling his stock and he wasn't trying to do anything shady or do insider trading. He was just doing what anyone would do in that scenario. And he's claiming that this is the government punishing him for not complying with this NSA surveillance program. Now, it's very important to point out that aside from his personal views, losing a contract over that and then just see really quickly the stock tank, that is kind of interesting. But uh, it's really important to point out that they were asking him in February of 2001 to participate in the surveillance program. February 2001. That's before 9-11 when supposedly all of this shit was the justification for. So, that's uh, that's kind of what could happen to someone who decides uh, to speak out against uh, the government as a telecom operator. So, keep that in mind, people. <laughs> if you're ever in that, salute, uh, in that situation, just hand it on over. Don't be a patriot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but al although the situation's bad, we do actually have uh, tools to fight this crypto war with. Um, according to leaked Snowden documents, uh, at least in 2013, there were different technologies that were being used online with different degrees of sophistication in order to break into these systems to collect information. Uh, the catastrophic category is what we would want to focus on due to the fact that it was considered to be uncrackable by the NSA at least that point in time. So some of these would be OTR for example um, in combination with an XMPP server use OTR plugin for Pigeon and you can communicate without any fear of at least in 2013 any fear of the NSA being able to intercept your communications of course your metadata will still be present but if you're using anonymizing services such as I2P or Tor I can highly aid you in your ability to uh, remain anonymous when it comes to voice and telephony we have encrypted VoIP technologies that exist uh, so uh, the, the common one that you'll see in enterprise the most ubiquitous uh, type of encrypted VoIP that you can deploy or see in an enterprise is uh, SRTP uh, which uses a client server, uh, client server uh, TLS based uh, encryption model that you'll see with uh, HTTPS or anything else um, and so obviously if the private key is compromised then all of that it can be encrypted and of course server side on the PBX uh, two extensions or phone numbers uh, communicating can be intercepted by the PBX itself um, so end-to-end -end encrypted uh, VoIP is the goal that we want to have here and that's where uh, ZRTP comes into play that was created by uh, Phil Zimmerman who's famous for creating PGP encryption uh, and he's also part of the DIME protocol uh, to reinvent email and a founder of Silent Circle and before Silent Circle he in invented ZRTP uh, and released Zphone which was a free non-open source uh, client that utilized ZRTP so uh, that's that's really when it comes to VoIP that is our answer is ZRTP because it's end-to-end -end encrypted it uses uh, SRTP but it also builds in end-to-end uh, -end encryption on top of it there are some unfortunately methods that you can use to uh, attack encrypted even into encrypted voice communications one of course is phonotactic reconstruction that's when you uh, take a an encrypted uh, conversation and you dissect it and you parse it into uh, little bits and then you apply linguistic rules of, uh, against it and you can re recreate uh, the conversation to a certain degree. So vowels or, or common links for like the or a, you know, you start breaking that down and you can kind of reconstruct the conversation. Uh, that's actually been proven in a non, as far as we know, real world environment. Uh, so, but I don't think you'd have to worry about that too much because they're, uh, constant bitrate codecs are not vulnerable to that 
uh, variable bitrate codecs are. So when you are selecting your codec when you're using VoIP, you want to make sure that it is a constant bitrate codec and not using variable bitrate. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do we do to, to, to protect ourselves? Well, there's a couple options. Silent Circle, like I said, it's the secure VoIP offering from Zimmerman. It uses ZRTB encryption. Uh, and that's the one that I said that I was sketchy about because it's closed source and due to the fact that it can call PS a PTSN network, uh, those calls aren't encrypted and it would have to fall under Kalea compliance for that. Obviously the, the most popular app that we would recommend is Signal uh, from Open Whisper Systems and Moxie Mar Marlin Spike um, to uh, the Signal's intelligence threat uh, report from 2013 it's considered a major threat so that's good for us <laughs> uh, <laughs> it uses ZRTP and it uses the speaks codec which is a variable bitrate codec but it specifically has it in constant bitrate mode so it, it's not going to be susceptible to phono ta uh, tactic reconstruction uh, the client is open source, but the server is closed source and I think they may have recently open sourced the server as well I don't I'm not sure um, There's also OSTEL, which is the open source telephony network. It's founded by the Guardian project. The Guardian project is a uh, very awesome uh, uh, Organization that develops applications for Android um, OSTEL features XMPP like federation uh, it forces encryption. Uh, you cannot have an unencrypted call. And it's a completely free and open source software stack. So if you're wanting to communicate, uh, what I would recommend for best practices is to use ZRTP without a variable bitrate codec. So some of your options there are codec 2, which is a very efficient low bandwidth codec that was developed for ham radio actually. Uh, speaks in uh, constant bitrate mode or opus in constant bitrate mode. Um, do not use a device with cellular capabilities because we just explained how awful <laughs> it is. Um, never trust your provider with security. Always assume that your provider is compromised uh, and use open source technologies uh, as a default. But some instances it may not be available and your threat model may not require it but uh, some servers that I would recommend are FreeSwitch or Camelo uh, on a uh, Linux uh, or BSD based operating system. Uh, clients would be Jitsi uh, or CSIP Simple on Android. I'm not going to recommend any iOS apps because the operating system is inherently compromised due to the fact that it's proprietary. Uh, yeah, you guys have anything else to add in on that? <laughs> no, that's pretty much a lot of what I would have said anyways. Mr. Chin, do you do you have a command line, a SIP client that we... Do you just... What do you do for encrypted comms? Do you just run TCP dump? Hmm. Uh, I do not have a, a command line SIP client. I actually uh, switch over to GUI for SIP communications. There we go. What about you, Black Math? Um, for SIP communications, uh, none really. I mean, I use uh, Signal. 
Yeah, pretty much exclusively. Signals actually, I've, I've noticed a bump in the audio quality recently. Um, I mean, we use that for uh, even like at work, like over uh, any sort of other messaging over phones. Yeah, it, it's excellent. Uh, I mean, if you're going to use something like Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or any of those, just use Signal uh, and you're good to go. Uh, and yeah, so I guess that's pretty much it. Uh, do you guys have anything else to add in? Uh, any Any tips? <laughs> I told you I'd make it work. Uh, Mr. Chim, what's your what's your uh, best practices for uh, telecommunications? Um, uh, two tin cans and a string. That's awesome. In Python. In Python. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I guess that wraps everything up. I guess we're done with your mom for this week. Uh, any, any last words, uh, Zandy, before we head out? No, man, I'm done. You really got to get that catchphrase, man. What? Yeah, BBW Slayer. You need to get your. <laughs> <laughs> you get your shit together. Uh, what? Am I supposed to hack the planet now? No, no, no. That's. That's, oh fuck! I fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> that's my <laughs> line, asshole. Uh, Mr. Chin, what's your parting words for everyone? Uh, they're trashing our rights. They're trashing them. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get a, one last "what the fuck"? What the fuck? <laughs> and, Later, fuckers. <laughs> and black math. Uh, crash them data centers. yes and uh, as always here at shadow systems we encourage you to hack the planet